Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 500 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm the CEO of the Australian Writer Centre and your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing, publishing, and how to succeed as an author or writer. Now, I honestly cannot believe that we are up to episode 500. I know that some listeners have been listening for a very long time, some since the very beginning. And if that's you, thank you so much for your support over the years. It's been such a privilege to be able to chat to you each week and bring you these fantastic authors. And honestly, we couldn't have made it here without you. Others are very new to the podcast, and if so, I'm thrilled that you have found the show, and I hope that you find it a useful addition to your playlist or to your weekly listening diet. If you're particularly new, you may not know that this podcast started off as a double act with my wonderful friend, Alison Tate, who is also an author. One day, I messaged her before we started podcasting and said, I have a surprise for you. And I had mocked up on Photoshop or some other graphic design program, some podcast cover art with a picture of her and a picture of me and a podcast title that said, so you want to be a writer, the podcast. And I said, what do you think? And she jumped in boots and all. And it's always been great fun to be able to chat with her about all things to do with books and writing. So... I thought it was only fitting for both of us to share in this milestone episode with you. How are you, Al? I'm very excited and somewhat surprised to find myself here. Uh, 500 episodes, Valerie Koo, that's amazing. I could not think of a better person to share this milestone with because you were with the podcast for 400 and billion episodes, so many. It was uh, 400 billion at least, I think. <laughs> yeah. And so I thought it would be absolutely fitting to have you back to celebrate with and also to see what you're up to. So what have you been up to? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been, it, it's been really strange because when I, um, when we stopped speaking to each other weekly to do the podcast, um, I, I found myself in this new world of having to reassess and sort of sort my routine out. I, I think I was at a moment of, of uh, change with a whole lot of things. And I, um, so uh, Book Boy left home. He's gone and moved to the oh big God, smoke. Oh my God, he's an adult. I oh know, he's 18 and he sort of caught the first train out of town, as you do, and <laughs> uh, took his guitar up to Sydney. And so he's he's now working in radio in Sydney. And also he put a new single out uh, just, you know, last week and he's... Um, Tell us got, what the single is, oh, it's is called, called so we know how to find it. It's called Left Behind. He's actually called Joe Vissa. So anyone who's n- looking for him, don't look up Book Boy because his <laughs> name is Joe Vissa, V-I-S-S-E-R. Uh, so it's called Left Behind. He's got a video on YouTube. And is that what he did a- to you? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I know. I, it's an interesting song, you know, because everyone who hears it thinks it's about them. And I think that's a really... I think that's a sign of really good writing because I think, mm. you know, if, if everyone sort of picks up your book or everyone listens to your song and thinks that you've written it specifically for them, I think you've done a really good job. But, um, yeah, it's called Left Behind. And then he's got an EP coming out um, in a few weeks' time. There'll be a second single. There'll be an EP. So there's been all that going on. Um, I've been writing. Uh, I've written 
uh, was when we last spoke, you know, on the podcast, my last episode, it was I wanted to dive in and try some different creative uh, things. I've been writing lots of different picture books, and I've been um, working on new manuscripts. And you know, I'm gonna I'm going to have some news around that very soon, which is quite exciting. Can't talk about Ooh. it. Gonna vague cast about that because you know that's <laughs> what we do. Um, so How yeah, I've been exciting. doing that. I know, and I've still been teaching. I've been doing lots of school talks. We've, we've just survived Book Week, oh, which wow, seemed okay. to go for about 800 years, but actually was only a few weeks. Um, yeah, so I've just been doing all of my things, just not podcasting every week um, with you, but although still podcasting every week because um, the Your Kids Next Read podcast has just been going from strength to strength. I am, yeah, it's uh, fantastic. Yeah, our, well, our community is now sort of. 25,000 something people. Um, So, you know, it's like I think I've said to you in the past, it's a little bit like being the mayor of a small town um <laughs> it's kind of crazy and it's it's uh, it's very very busy so that kind of keeps me keeps me entertained as well it also keeps me on top of it's an interesting place to be because it keeps me on top of not only everything that's coming out because i as far as in the ch- in the children's um and ya space because i get a lot of book mail uh, mm. but it also keeps me on top of everything that parents and caregivers and booksellers and aunties and grands and all of those sorts of people are looking for for their young readers so we get some really great intel yeah and it's interesting so apparently um there was a a a lady in there not that long ago asking for her her son a young reader about five was obsessed with slugs and (laughs) she was like does anyone know any great books about slugs? And I'm thinking, oh, no, surely she stumped the community on this one. Like how many books about slugs can there be? And in actual fact, there are more books about slugs out there than you could ever possibly imagine. And not only. Exactly. But I also then had an idea about a book about a slug for myself, which um, (laughs) I can honestly say I never would have thought about writing about slugs before, but I had this kind of little idea come to me and I thought, hmm, I could write that down because that might be useful at some point. Um, Yeah, so that's what I've been doing, you know, just putting myself into the space of, of writing and creativity and um, well, I can't I, wait to read about read the book on slugs. Yeah, well, I, you know, <laughs> we might be waiting a little while for it to bubble up into just the right thing, but you never, <laughs> never know. Um, but, yeah, and I've also been gardening, Valerie, and I believe oh, just yeah. following your Facebook and Instagram that you also have been out there in the garden um, and it's going relatively well I believe well it's going I'm not sure whether I think relatively well is a bit generous <laughs> because um, I'm not great at it but I am learning and um, I'm getting tips from the most unlikely of places you give me great tips which is fantastic I've planted <laughs> the beautiful rose that you sent me and it's you know sprouting it's it's growing it looks it's very healthy it's doing its thing um, of all things that you know uh, the crime best-selling crime writer, 
Candace Fox, who usually all she talks about is serial killers and murderers. Yeah. She texts me her gardening tips. So Okay. You know, that's so really, she's not really suggesting good. that you pop a body under the roses or anything like that for fertilization. Like are they are they less kind of gory than that? They are less gory than that, which is great. But I did text her back at one point and I said um, who knew an expert in serial killers and and gardening? Maybe your next character should be a serial killing horticulturalist or botanist. And of course, she immediately replies and says, "There was one, you know, in America. He used to bury his bodies oh. in giant pots." <laughs> no, of course she did. That's exactly what she also. She's also a great. Um, she's actually a wildlife. Uh, she sort of seems to pick up injured wildlife everywhere she oh, goes. Geez. And and sort of rehabilitates it and then sends it back. She's had rabbits and she's had possums and she's had all manner. She's constantly rescuing random yes. animals. She's fascinating. I, honestly, I love watching her on social media because she's highly entertaining. Her interests are diverse. Mm. But I'm also, um, as you are actually, getting out because now that things are calming down a little bit, you can we can actually go to book launches that are, you know, back to where they usually were, not yes. sort of small numbers and no alcohol. <laughs> we, they're actually, you know, serving alcohol. And um, they're really fun. And also, you know, the festivals because mm. you're, you, you've been at some festivals and you've got one coming up with the, is it the Berry Writers Festival? That's what right. What are you talking um, about there? Um, I'm, have, I'm on a, on a um, panel there with Mick Elliott and Helena Fox, and we are talking about emotion and feeling in um, in children's um, children's novels. So we're kind of talking about the highs, the lows, the the action, the adventure, the you know how far can you sort of like take some of the themes. Um, I think it'll be a really fun and interesting. Uh, panel to be honest with you and then just recently I got to interview I had an in conversation with the wonderful Kate Forsyth at Bundanon which was just beautiful and we had the most hilarious time of it because we uh, know each other quite well so it was just you know it was a really lovely relaxed they're my favorite kinds of in conversations mm. because there's that sort of element of, of fun in them and she's always so interesting she brought her sewing with her and she brought her notebooks with her <laughs> and you know so we had the, it all strewn out on the stage and it was it was um it was really great and then in November I'm off to Adelaide I'm going to be doing a children's oh festival over in Adelaide which I'm really excited about that's I do love those you know because it's like going on school camp for children's authors so we go to these places and they put us all up in a hotel and they, then they put us all on the bus and and ship us around to different places and we go and do our things and we're all it's like being on the camp bus it's really fun we have a great time oh cool mm. and of course you've been doing a whole heap of um school visits lately yeah. what's the what's the most fun thing and the most challenging thing about um school visits so they're they're a great I really enjoy them they are I realized that I was not match fit this year because it takes a huge amount of stamina to present the same thing uh, three or four times in a day because often you'll go to a school and they'll want your author talk for, you know, three or four different stages This and you're essentially saying the same thing over and over again. 
Um, and so trying to keep track of where you're up to. And I find myself going, have I told you guys this? Or have you heard this joke oh, before? Oh, yeah. Because uh, mm. you sort of, you get quite practiced at what you're talking about. And, and obviously you're topping and tailing and changing things for different age groups, but you're essentially delivering the same material. Um, and that that can be quite challenging, but it's also fun. And I mean, the, the best part about kids' visits is just you know, the kinds of random questions that you get or the responses that you get. Um, but I have to say that I had I had a talk during this last lot that was probably one of the most challenging I've ever done and only because um, it was a year eight group, uh, which is always difficult um, because they're they're sort of like they're sort of at that in-between age at high school. So they're not sort of year nine on a on a Friday afternoon, you know that you're going into chaos. <laughs> what they are, what they can be, is just a wall and you get oh. nothing back from them. So the energy you're putting out an enormous mm. amount of energy, and they're all just sitting there like looking at you, mm. um, like you're someone's mum who's lost their mind, which essentially you are, like let's face it. <laughs> and you're sort of like all the things that would work would that worked brilliantly with the group before just like just dead silence like it, it and that was that was the toughest one I've done like that's harder than a group is calling out or a group that's yes, kind of being yes. sort of like you'll do I'll do grade five sometimes I'll go and do like 120 grade five boys all at once and the whole room moves like they're constantly <laughs> wriggling they're rolling around they're doing all these different things um but the stone wall is a much more difficult actual proposition. And do you crack it? Did, did you manage well, to crack it? Uh, to a degree, um, but it's, you know, you do sort of like you just do all you can do is what you do. And mm. we got to the point, so there was one section that was interactive, the first interactive section where I asked a question and I got no response whatsoever. So I just talked through the responses that I would normally get myself. Mm. The second time I asked a question, I did get some hands and I felt you know, like, okay, I'd made some progress. And by the it time did. I got to the end and there was the Q&A section at the end, they were asking questions. So I thought, okay, maybe this is not as bad as I thought it was. Um, but mm. it was it was like I'd imagine doing stand-up comedy and you're standing yes. in front of a club and no one is laughing. I'd imagine yes. it's similar feeling to that. Um, You've just got to try, keep trying. You just, you just have to keep, have to keep crack going it, right? yeah. and you have to try and keep your energy level up at the same level um, mm. because if you deflate, then yes. you're toast. It's like, you know, that the, they'll have you for breakfast. And, of course, I can liken this to Bon Jovi because, as you know. Of course you can because everything <laughs> in life can come back to Bon Jovi. I know Bon Jovi has life lessons for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Because, as you know, I have been to many Bon Jovi concerts and so I I can see what he does in terms of the energy and having the crowd feed off the palm of his hand and all of yeah. that. But I did go to one at um, Dockland Stadium and I was – at the front row, so I could see what front his row. Yeah, I could Look see, you. you know, his yeah. face and everything. But he, he was that's what he was getting. He got the wall for some mm. reason. Just the dynamic the dynamics of the night, you know, the way yeah. it was set up. I don't know, but he was getting the wall. And I thought it was so interesting because A, I'd never seen him get the wall before. Um, but also I watched him work it, work it, work it, work it until bang, he cracked it. You could see the relief. Yeah, as yeah, well. yeah, yeah. When yeah, the crowd finally responded. Yeah. Because it's it's a and I'd imagine for someone like him too, 
like as you say, the energy that you get back from a crowd mm. like that is what gets you through a two-hour oh. really high-energy performance. So if you're not getting anything back, if you're just putting it all out there and it's dropping on the floor, yeah. you it's just a one-way sort of – and yeah. there's only so much that you've got to throw out there. So you need it to come back at you or you're – I mean, I'm not like in any way sort of like comparing <laughs> myself to John Bon Jovi here because it wasn't like that. Um, maybe if I'd busted out an air guitar solo, that might have been mm. the thing that kind of got them over the line. But yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, and you do it is that it is a performance when you do a school yeah. visit like that. So you are there, sort of like yes, you're there to talk about your books, and yes, you're there to you know teach a bit about re- writing or whatever you're doing. But you are essentially there to you know, inspire and motivate and sort of like bring up mm. the excitement levels around reading and writing and it's a performance. And that's what makes it so difficult for so many authors because, and particularly when you haven't done it for a couple of years, we've not done the face-to-face for yes, quite a long time. Right. And so you kind of like, I, I got there and I was like, oh, that's right. Now I remember this is just a constant wave of energy out and then go home and lie down and then come back the next day and do it mm. all again. And it's but you know tiring. What- what you said about you have to remember, have I told this joke before or, you know, and all of that. I went to this author talk once where the guy, um, I don't know whether he'd done several in that day. I don't think so. But he obviously had done this talk so A many lot. times mm-hmm. and was on autopilot because he he told this not long but medium length joke and it was f- good and funny and literally not even 20 minutes later, like, Five minutes later, he told the, told same the exact same joke. Aww. Five minutes later, and everyone in the room kind of just looked at each other. And he was, he so he was clearly on autopilot, but he even knew, even on autopilot, to give energy to the joke, but he didn't realize he was just repeating himself what he said five minutes ago. That is hilarious. Yeah, it was so bizarre. So you do, you do have to remember what you've actually told that particular group that you're talking to if it's something that you have, um, you know, said, said before. But anyway, <laughs> it's interesting though, because my sister's in human, um, resources and she went to a conference not that long ago and she did a workshop in the morning with a with a sort of some kind of speaker that she was really really impressed by and the information was great and the the presentation was terrific and it was amazing and she loved it and then she went to something later that day and this speaker was part of whatever was on later that day and she felt so disappointed and ripped off when he repeated almost word for word the stuff that he had told them in the workshop that morning. Mm -hmm. And she said it was interesting because she said it really made me feel like I'd been duped in some way because I thought that what was happening in that room was quite special. And Mm -hmm. then I saw that him do exactly the same thing later on and I thought, you just do this for everyone, you know. Yeah. I I said, but you do realise that the guy, (laughs) that's what he does, right? That's his profession and he's out there doing that. And she goes, yeah, I know, but I felt special and then I wasn't. And I thought, yeah, there you go. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yes. Well, um, it sounds like you've been very, very, very busy. So thank you so much for, you know, taking the time to come and regroup with your oh, Val, with as if I community. wouldn't. As if I wouldn't. I have missed <laughs> I've missed everybody so much. And I I do um so I pop in every once in a while into the Facebook group, the So You Wanna Be a Writer Facebook group, and I drop drop in some, you know, stories or things that I've been writing for the Australian Writer Centre blog or, you know, a little update mm. if um if something comes 
along and I do love it. I I um I miss everybody. It's great to see all those familiar faces still in there, you know, talking to each other and sharing advice and sharing tips and um yeah, it is something that I I do miss. It's it's a it's a very special community the so you want to be a writer community and I do miss, you know, my weekly connection with you all. Um I'm sure well, that stick you're around not missing because my the- voice. Oh, absolutely missing you. So stick around because um, obviously we have some a very important part for you to play very, oh, very shortly. But okay. let's just do our competition All right, for thanks. this week. So everyone, we have three copies of Shrines of Gaiety by Kate Atkinson. 1926 and in a country still recovering from the Great War, London has become the focus for a delirious new nightlife. In the clubs of Soho, peers of the realm rub shoulders with starlet foreign dignitaries with gangsters and girls sell dances for a shilling a time. The notorious queen of this glittering world is Nellie Coker, ruthless but also ambitious to advance her six children, including the enigmatic eldest Niven, whose character has been forged in the crucible of the Somme. But success breeds enemies and Nellie's empire faces threats from without and within. From beneath the dazzle of Soho's gaiety, there's a dark underbelly, a world in which it is all too easy to become lost. With her unique Dickensian flair, Kate Atkinson brings together a glittering cast of characters in a truly mesmeric novel that captures the uncertainty and mutability of life, of a world in which nothing is quite as it seems. All right. So we exactly, I've been missing the sound effects. So we have three (laughs) copies of Shrines of Gaiety by Kate Atkinson uh, to give away. Entries close on the 26th of September. Now just go to writerscentre.com.au slash win for your chance to enter. And, of course, if you're going to that URL in the future, don't worry, there'll be some other fantastic uh, competition for you to enter. That's writerscentre.com.au slash win. I think they should get in this week, though, because Kate Atkinson is absolutely phenomenal. She is one of my favourite authors and I love her. So I might be entering myself because technically... Yeah. I can now. You can Technically, now, yes. I can. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? Oh, I just, I knew it was coming and I was braced and I was, Val, do you know what? I actually am ready because it's been a while. And so <laughs> I'm ready to have my vocabulary extended in some mesmerizing and wonderful way. All right. Be prepared to be mesmerized and wondered. Is that a word? No. Dazzled. I'll be dazzled instead. Dazzled. All right. Yeah. Oh, I've got to practice this before I. Can you even say it? If you can't say it, I don't think you should be allowed to use it. Really? Okay. Stercoracious. Stercoracious. That's S-T-E-R-C-O-R-A-C-E-O-U-S. Stercoracious. Do you know what it means? It sounds dinosaur-y. Like I feel like it's like it's like the Cretaceous period or something like that. It does sound like that, doesn't it? Well, it is an adjective and it means <laughs> it means consisting of resembling or relating to dung or feces. Are you so serious. Yes. Did you choose this especially for me? Did you actually, like, oh, my God, Al's coming on. I'm going to get out the word that means dung. Did you actually do that? Oh, 
can't believe it. And oh, you can't even say it. No one is going to use this word because you they can't might. pronounce it. How are you going to use might. it? Use it in a sentence for me. Go okay. On. So the here's it in a sentence. The public was unimpressed by the stercoracious statue that had been installed in the main square. Like, you know, the 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 poo on sticks that's at the top of William Street? Yeah. That, they're stercoracious. They are stercoracious. That, Al Pratt was unimpressed by the use of stercoracious <laughs> in word of the week. <laughs> okay, but while researching this word, this is cool, I found an academic book. Mm. Now, it's published in 2008, but there's this book. I'm not kidding. It's real. It's called Excrement in the Middle Ages, which <laughs> focuses... <laughs> Really? And it focuses on, are you ready for this? It focuses on um, poo and waste in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. That's really <laughs> specific. And it uses the word stercoracious somewhere yeah, yeah, in there. Yeah. I'm of sure. It does. Of where, yeah. why would it not? That's excellent research. You really went down a rabbit hole there, didn't you? <laughs> a dung hole. <laughs> and that was the word of the week. Oh, and when people say to me, why did you leave? Why did you what? When people say to me, why did you leave? So you want to be a writer. <laughs> I usually say, word of the week. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I know you don't really mean that. Now, um, before we move on to our writer in residence this week, listeners, I just want to say a big thank you to the wonderful Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate. Uh, for coming back and joining us for this milestone episode. Thank you so much, Al. It's been so great to see what you've been doing since. And of course, even though we don't talk on the podcast every week, um, I love seeing all of the things that you're doing. Well, thank you very much for having me. And it's been an absolute pleasure. It's lovely to be back in the ears of the So You Want to Be a Writer community. And, you know, I'll be around. I've got things coming out. I'm going to be a writer in residence again here so at yes. some point. And I forgot to mention, Maven and Reeve Mysteries are now out in the US. So if you are listening oh, yes. and you are in the USA, keep an eye out for the Maven and Reeve Mysteries, um, you know, near you. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Al. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our hugely popular course, How to Write About Murder, is all about creating more authentic action for your crime or thriller novel. Presented by award-winning crime author Candace Fox, this course covers nine modules of fascinating detail, taking you beyond the police tape to explore what motivates killers and how they go about their business. You'll also immerse yourself in the chase, from the murder scene and autopsy to the investigation that follows. Here's what Danuka McKenzie says. I am now a published author. My crime novel, The Torrent, is being published by HarperCollins. I discovered the anatomy of a crime, how to write a murder course, and I really thought that would be something that would be useful for me. I just loved it because it really broke down the different aspects of crime. So really right from the motivation to commit a crime through to the afterwards, you know, the arrest and then the prison life as well. And it really went through all the research that you need to do as a crime writer to kind of get those realistic aspects into your writing so that your readers will go with you on the story. I'm very grateful to the Australian Writers' Centre and to the whole community for being able to get me to this stage of having a published novel and continuing to be able to write as my full-time job now. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash murdercourse. 
That's writercentre.com.au slash murder course. I hope you enjoyed having Alison back. I'm sure I'll be able to entice her for some future guest spots too. But for now, I want to let you know about a fantastic session we're holding this week. It's called Focus on Openings. Now, this is a live Zoom seminar, and it's all about how to write a compelling opening that will make publishers want to read to the end of your manuscript, right? Because a publisher, well, may not judge your book by its cover because it hasn't got one yet, but they will certainly judge it based on your opening pages. So the thing is, how do you make sure you capture their attention right from the very beginning? You can't kind of think, oh, well, you know, I'm going to get to the good bit by page 20. No, you need to get them in straight away. You want your readers and your publishers to be magically pulled into a story just from your opening pages, and you want them to fully immerse themselves in your world. So how do you do that as a writer? What techniques are important to ensure that they not only keep reading, but of course then become fully engaged in your characters and your story and the voice of it? This is a live online seminar with bestselling author Pamela Freeman, also known as Pamela Hart, and she's going to focus on getting your story off to the best possible start. Of course, there's going to be a Q&A at the end where Pamela will be answering all of your questions, so stay tuned for that. It's at 7pm Sydney time on Wednesday, the 21st of September. So make sure that you check that out if you're interested. Just go to writercentercomau slash focus. That's writercentercomau slash focus. I also wanted to say that I am really looking forward to catching up with many of you at this weekend's Northern Beaches Readers Festival, which is on Saturday the 24th and Sunday the 25th of September in Avalon in Sydney. It is a great venue and a lovely part of the world, right on the beach, easy parking and so many incredible authors. The lineup is fantastic. There's going to be Michael Robotham, Candace Fox, Kate Forsyth, Pamela Hart, Petronella McGovern, Joanna Nell, Tim Eilif, Benjamin Stevenson, Judy Nunn. Honestly, the, the, the list is fantastic. The organisers have done an absolutely fantastic job programming this festival. I reckon it's one of the best festivals around. I will be hosting a panel on Saturday uh, at 9.45 with Kate Forsyth and Pamela Hart, who have written almost 100 books between them. And they're going to be talking about writing across lots of different genres, from mystery to historical fiction to fantasy, romance and everything in between, paranormal, everything, and how they've carved out their fantastic author careers that way. I'll also be hosting Thrilling New Voices uh, Saturday at 3 o'clock, with Ray Cairns, Ali Lowe and Danuka McKenzie, three of the newest voices in Australian fiction. So it's going to be great because they're going to have a lot to share about carving out a career as an author. And then there is a free session at 4.30 called Secrets from Behind the Mic. So there's going to be three of us who all have writing podcasts, Pamela Cook, myself and Claudine Tanellis. So we will be revealing all about what it's like to podcast about the world of writing and books. Anyway, you can check out more at nbrf, that's Northern Beaches Readers Festival, nbrf.com.au. And if you're there, come and say hi. Now let's move on to our writer in residence this week.
Ruth Ware is an international number one bestseller. Her thrillers, In a Dark, Dark Wood, The Woman in Cabin 10, The Lion Game, The Death of Mrs. Westaway, The Turn of the Key, and One by One have appeared on bestseller lists around the world, including the Sunday Times and the New York Times bestseller lists. Her books have been optioned for both film and TV, and she is published in more than 40 languages. Ruth lives near Brighton in the UK, and her latest novel is The It Girl. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ruth. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here and without having to fly all the way to Australia. <laughs> I know, the wonders of technology, right? Now, The the It Girl, your latest novel, tell us what it's about. Well, <clears throat> okay, so I've had some practice summing it up now. Um, it's about a bookseller uh, called Hannah. Um, she lives in Edinburgh with her husband, Will, her college sweetheart, Will. They're expecting their first baby. Um, on the face of it, life is pretty idyllic. Um, but we learn that Hannah has a trauma in her past, something that she's been trying to forget for 10 years. And as the book starts, um, that trauma is brought back to her when her mum phones her up at work and says, John Neville is dead. And we don't at first know who he is, but we quickly learn that when Hannah was at university, her roommate April was killed. She was Hannah found her murdered, uh, strangled in their um, college suite. And the college porter, John Neville, was convicted largely on Hannah's evidence. Um, but 10 years later, Neville has died in prison, still protesting his innocence. And his death forces Hannah to face up to the fact that she has never been completely happy with his conviction there's questions that she's never been able to answer there's loose ends that were never tied up um and when a podcaster comes uh, nosing around um asking further questions that she uh making her consider things that she hadn't thought about um she's forced to admit that possibly she got it wrong 10 years ago and even worse than that um an innocent man could have died in prison and one of her close friends might actually be the person responsible for April's death. So she, uh, that's, that's like the first two chapters. There's no spoilers there. <laughs> uh, so she goes off on a, yeah, on a quest to try and find out who really killed April. Now, what gave you this idea? Um, it's always really difficult to pin down inspirations for novels I mean sometimes there's like a really clear conversation that I can point to and say yes it was that or you know a newspaper article that you read where you're like wouldn't it have been weird if it turned out this way instead of that way um in this case I think the influences are much harder to sort of pick apart but I think when I was about two-thirds of the way through writing the book I realized that a lot of it was coming from a personal experience of mine, which was doing jury service um, several years ago now. Um, and thank goodness the case wasn't anywhere near as serious as the one that Hannah experiences in the book. But I found it surprisingly, um, I don't want to say traumatic, because I think that kind of overstates the level of my involvement. But you know, I, I did find it a huge and daunting responsibility. I found it preyed on my mind in a way that I hadn't been expecting. I took it really seriously. And I think all of the people involved in the case did as well, all of the other jurors. Um, and I just, yeah, I was just really, um, really shocked by how kind of, how 
upsetting the whole situation was and I'd sort of gone into it thinking oh it'll be great to do my civic duty and find out a bit more about the justice system and I came away really convinced that you know any involvement with the justice system is a profoundly bruising experience Um, and that was just me as a juror in a very you know privileged insulated way I couldn't imagine how much more traumatic and upsetting it would be to be a witness or a defendant or someone who had suffered a crime themselves and to be put through days and days of questioning and disbelief and having your arguments picked apart. Um, And I started to think about what it would be like to be that person, to be involved in a much more intimate way with a case. Um, And then I guess because I'm a writer and, and, you know, it's a natural instinct to push things to extreme. I sort of tried to put myself in the shoes of what I felt would be like the worst case scenario for me, which would be being involved in a case where in some way I had made a huge and really serious mistake. Um, So that is the that is the mill that I put poor Hannah through in the book. (laughs) Mm. Now, did you always want to be an author? Did you always want to be a writer, even from when you were very young? Yeah, very much so. Um, I mean, I don't even know that I would say I wanted to be a writer. I think I was just a really instinctive storyteller right from when I was tiny. And it started off with me you know, telling stories to my sister about our teddies and our dolls and my Barbie dolls always had these, you know, incredible Jackie Collins sagas of love affairs and vengeance. And, you know, I was just, I was kind of spinning plots from a really young age, but I didn't know any writers growing up. I didn't, um, you know, none of my friends' parents were involved in the arts. It just didn't seem like something a normal, regular person could do. Um, And I remember having a conversation with my mum when I was probably about five or six and her saying, you know, what would you like to be when you grow up? And me saying, well, I think I'd like to be a writer. And she said, which was both kind of very sensible advice, but also maybe a bit too crushing for a six year old. She said, well, that would be lovely, but I think maybe a lot of other people might want to be writers too. So perhaps you should have a plan B. So if it doesn't work out, is there anything else that you would like to do? And I said, well, do you think it's a job writing the descriptions on the backs of books? And she was like, yeah, I guess somebody must be paid to do that. And I was like, "Okay, well, that's what I'd like to do. If I can't be a writer, I'd like to write the descriptions on the backs of books. Oh, my goodness. You thought this at the age of six? Yeah, that was my that was the pinnacle of my ambitions. I still do have a plan B. I think it's really good advice for anyone, anybody, uh, but particularly writers, because it's such a precarious um, career um, with so much that's not in your control. Um, But now my now my plan B would be to be an accountant. I think I'd be a really good accountant. (laughs) (laughs) Are you serious? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I love a good spreadsheet. I really I enjoy all the kind of like I don't love doing my taxes, but I really enjoy the satisfaction of I'm quite a numbers person and I like the way numbers slot together in a way where you know that you're right in a way that doesn't happen with words which are much more slippery and ephemeral so uh, yeah that would be my that's my plan B. (laughs) So you went off to Manchester University and what did you study there? Um, I studied English literature um, and language um, which uh, on the one hand was a great excuse to read books for three years. Um, I don't think it did anything at all for my writing. I'm often asked if, you know, should people do a creative language course? Is it necessary to have studied English literature? 
Um, I had a lovely time for three years. I didn't write at all for three years because I don't know about anybody else, but certainly my experience of doing an English literature degree was basically having this fire hose of literature aimed at me, starting from like sort of the dream of the rude old English texts right up to sort of, you know, 20th century classics and just being expected to absorb as much of this as you possibly can, which is it's quite intimidating and quite anti-creative in a way because you're just being buffeted with other people's words so much that you don't really have any space to, to think about your own. Um, but it definitely, like, it gave me a really solid grounding in the classics. And I, I think I spent a lot of time thinking about how stories are constructed, what makes a good narrative, why certain things work. Um, but I think ultimately, for me anyway, writing is a much more instinctive process than that. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say it, it made me into a writer or a better writer, but it was certainly nice to spend three years just reading and enjoying books. And just having the uni life. But yeah. let's um, move, move forward then. After your university and you did have the space to write your own stories, what did that look like? When were you writing and what was your break? Um, well, I was so I was writing in the evenings and at weekends. Um, I had a pretty full-on job. Um, but I started working in the book trade, which on the one hand, actually really was a very good preparation for writing a book because it forces you to think about literature in a completely different way from the point of view of bookshops and readers and where does this book sit in the market? Um, but on the other hand, it gave me a huge attack of stage fright because <laughs> uh, I was working with all these incredible writers who were like, you know, Booker Prize winners, Orange Prize winners, Nobel Prize winners in some cases. Um, and it just made it increasingly hard to sort of hold my sort of slightly ugly duckling attempts on my hard drive up against the books that I was working with. Um, so I kept writing, but I kept not doing anything with the books that I was writing. Um, they just sort of went under the bed in a metaphorical sense um and then uh when I was um in my 30s I went off on maternity leave with my second baby and I realized that I had no time for hobbies anymore and that my writing was basically a hobby um you know I had two kids I had a job I had all the like myriad responsibilities of trying to like keep a household together and feed a family and you know just they just weren't enough hours in the day I barely had time to wash my hair let alone um you know bang out novels um and I I realized that unless I made space for this in my life in a really practical way like made it earn its place I was not going to be able to carry on doing this for you know at least the next five to ten years and possibly longer and I I thought I have the length of my maternity leave before I go back to work and this all kind of starts again um I need to write something that I'm proud to send out and I need to find the courage to try and get an agent so yeah so that's that's what I did so you have an alter ego because you started writing as Ruth Warburton and you wrote young adult fantasy novels and you wrote several of those, but then you shifted, changed genres, changed name, um, changed the type of story, the settings um, that your characters were in. What prompted this? 
Well, I think so. When I started writing, writing YA was actually um, <clears throat> it was a fairly deliberate decision in the sense of I was working in adult uh, fiction publishing. And so writing YA felt a slightly safer thing to do because I didn't know anyone in the YA sphere. Um, the editors are completely different. The agents are by and large completely different, although my agent does do a bit of both. Um, so it felt like a sort of safe space to fail in a way. Um, so I, I, the first, yeah, the first five novels that I wrote and the, the novels that got me my agent were young adult novels. Um, and having written five of those, I had an idea for a book. Um, I was having coffee with a friend and she said that she'd never read a thriller set on a hen night. And I've always been a, a thriller addict. I love reading them. Um, it's, you know, psychological thrillers are among my favourite genres. Some of my like all time desert island books are, are psychological thrillers. Um, but I'd never tried to write one. And as soon as she said this, I was like, huh, that's really weird. I haven't read one fitting that description either and it's a really great idea I don't know why no one's written it and then I thought I want to read this book and it doesn't exist so maybe I should write it um, but very clearly you know there was no way that a thriller set on a hen night could ever be a YA novel um, there's a lot of things that you can tackle in YA you know there's very few off-limit topics but it's quite hard to think of a natural reason why a sort of 15 16 year old would be getting married mm -hmm. um so it was clearly never going to be a YA novel. And I sort of had the choice of did I did I want to <clears throat> stick with my existing kind of niche more or did I want to write this novel more? And I really, really wanted to write the novel. Um, so I wrote the novel and actually, although it is a change of genre, I don't think, to me anyway, it doesn't feel very different writing adult novels for adults than it does for for teenagers you know teenagers are pretty sophisticated you don't really have to tone down your vocabulary much you might take out a few swear words but that's a that's a, a it really um they're slightly pacier but only I I write basically the same for each genre um it's just that the process of editing for my YA novels was always much more about cutting and the process of editing for my adult novels is usually about expanding and adding in detail. Um, so my writing has sort of remained more or less the same. It's just the editing process has slightly changed. And why do you think that is? Why why do you think it's cutting for YA but adding for um, the adult thrillers? Um, I just think there is um, more of a convention of pace in YA novels. They're just a little bit faster. Um Adults will stick with you often a little bit more in terms of description and introspection. Um, I mean, it's obviously there's like exceptions to the rule in in everything. You know, you can find very, very short, pacey adult novels and very descriptive, lengthy YA novels. But in general, that is what editors in each genre want. Um, I think you just have to compete a little bit harder for teenagers' attention. They've got a lot going on in their lives <laughs> between school and social lives. And so you really have to work to give them a reason to, to turn the page. Um, but yeah, but that that was that was the extent of it, really. Um, and then the 
request to change my name came from my publishers because um, I think they didn't want my little 13-year-old readers accidentally picking up an adult book and then getting, you know, complaints about the content or whatever. So it was never a secret, but it was more a way of just saying this: these books are for adults, these are for kids and making it really clear in the, in the branding, yeah. So the first thriller became In a Dark, Dark Wood, which then... Goes nuts. Reese Witherspoon decides she wants to make a movie out of it, um, and uh, and it's not actually the only book of yours that has been optioned for film. You then follow that with several um, other psychological thrillers, some of which become New York Times bestsellers. When did you get the news that you were a New York Times bestseller? Um. Do you so recall? First, yeah, I do. Um, they actually all become New York Times bestsellers. Touch wood. I probably shouldn't jinx myself now. But yeah, um, so far, um, every single one has hit the list, which is pretty cool. When it um, came out? Uh, so the, well, so in a dot dot wood, um, it was the second week, I think. And I'd just done NPR, um, which oh. were, is obviously like a big deal in, in, in the US. It was very cool. Um and I, I remember I was at home and it was about 11 o'clock at night because um, that's when the list comes out um, in the States is like sort of seven o'clock in the evening. And for us, that's much later, obviously. Um, and my husband was asleep. My kids at the time were very small, so they were all in bed. And I got a phone call, which was quite unusual. And it was my editor saying, you've made the list. And I I was never expecting it. I don't know if they were. I imagine they were hoping, but I, I don't think there was sort of any um, great certainty about it. Um, and, yeah, I just remember just dancing around the living room, <laughs> and, but really quietly because I didn't want to wake anybody up and then creeping up to bed and saying to my husband, the book's on the New York Times bestseller list. And him being like, well done, dear. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was oh a lovely God. moment. <laughs> and now it's just like, oh, you know, expected. <laughs> that's well, fantastic. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, that's brilliant. So let's... Let's talk about um, this particular book, The It Girl. Can you tell us um, what the gestation period was? So how long it took for you to do your first draft or a draft that you were happy with um, and what your writing routine is on a daily basis? Well, so this book was a funny one because um, it, I've done a book a year every year since my first book. Um, and 2020 was the first year that I didn't write a book um, for obvious reasons. <laughs> we were all in lockdown. I was homeschooling my kids. Um, my husband is a virologist, so there was no way he could take any time off, really. Um, although he did try really hard to claw back time to support, you know, me and the kids. Um, but I just didn't have the headspace or the time to, to write a book for the first time in a long time. Um, and so, yeah, 2020 was the first year that I did not write a book. So 2021 was the first year I didn't have one out. Um, and I spent the year, yeah, wrestling with teams, learning how to use Zoom, you know, all <laughs> the other things that the rest of us did. Um, and I was incredibly lucky to be able to, 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 you know, to take that break. If I'd had a career where I had to be online all the time, I just don't know how we would have survived the year. Um, but... Um, 
I came out of it just bursting to write. Just I, I, at the time, I didn't think I had anything to write, um, and I think. Uh, in common with a lot of writers I had that kind of like oh my goodness you know what is the point of my job when my husband was sort of downstairs trying to like you know with all of his colleagues trying to figure out what the heck was going on and how they could you know fix this um I was sort of thinking well I write slightly silly stories for a living what's the point of this um but I think you know as it went on I think we all became more and more aware of the importance of having an avenue of escape, having entertainment, you know, book sales rocketed during lockdown. So did streaming services. I think we all wanted an escape into story and a way of understanding what was happening to us. Um, so I sort of fell in love with story a little bit over, um, over the course of that year and came out of it just desperate to write because the, you know, the older I get, the more I realise that writing is my way of processing stuff and figuring stuff out. And I hadn't been able to do it for a year. Um, so once I was back at my desk, which happened kind of autumn 2020, I guess, although we did then have another extra little mini lockdown just for fun. Um, I, I was one of the fastest books that I, I'd written since In a Dark, Dark Wood. It just kind of poured out of me. So I think not counting the break that we had for the for the extra lockdown I think it was probably about four months of writing which was pretty quick for me it normally takes me about six um and my writing day is very um it's very kind of officey um I officey well I so when I gave up my day job I tried I promised myself that I would treat writing like a day job um, because for so long I'd had to kind of cram it into weekends and evenings and I thought I am going to treat this like a job because it now is my job um, partly to give it like the seriousness that it deserves you know I I didn't want I've seen other writers struggling with friends and families not treating their work like work because it's fun um, and feeling free to you know ring them up in the middle of it and you know expect them to drop everything and I, I thought I have to treat this like a job otherwise the other people in my life won't um, but also I wanted to make sure that evenings and weekends were for decompression and for my family and so I try pretty hard I, I sit down at the desk at 9am after my kids have gone off to school I write until about three which is when they break um, I take a break for lunch sometimes if the writing's going really well I sometimes write straight through and then sort of emerge blinking and realize that I haven't had any food um, but after that I try to shut it down and I keep my work in progress only on the computer that's in my office at my desk um, which is partly to stop myself from sort of obsessing over it and fiddling with it in the evenings and at weekends um, but partly one of my favorite places to write is in bed but unfortunately I've screwed up my back doing that <laughs> so this is a way of forcing me to sit in a proper chair a prop, you know properly adjusted with a proper screen at a proper height and that's just much better for my body all round and yeah. <laughs> Do you have a word count goal, a daily word word count goal or weekly or anything? No, no. I I 
I don't, I mean, I count words in the sense of I've got the tally at the bottom of my screen because it's, you know, that's an automatic part of word. Um, but I don't think word counts are a very useful measure of progress. You can have a better day deleting 500 words of rubbish than writing 500 mediocre words. Um, so I sort of refuse to feel good about one and bad about the other. I try to make sure that I've made progress with my book every day um, and that it's in better shape at the end than it was at the beginning, but that doesn't have to be adding words. If I, if I feel that the book is closer to what I want it to be at the end of the day, that's how I measure progress. Um, but obviously I have a, a knowledge in the back of my head that I need to hit a hundred thousand words ish um, by whatever the deadline is for that book. So on some level, part of me is sort of thinking, can I write 60,000 words in however many months and keeping a, a tally of how panicked I am? Um, but that, that's a very, yeah, that it's it's a, just a subjective thing that I sort of, it's just more or less how pressured do I feel to get the words down? It's not like, did I do a thousand words today tick? <laughs> Otherwise, so, yeah. <laughs> when you start writing, do you know what's going to happen? Do you already know what's how it's going to be resolved? Or do you just um, start writing? I almost always know who did it um, and how uh, and why usually, although sometimes the why um, is the bit that gets tweaked most. Um, I think because the kind of books that I write, I really want to give the reader a fair shakes at guessing the outcome. And I can only do that if I sow the seeds for the reader in the first place. So um if I don't lay those clues and drop those breadcrumbs, I don't feel that I've given the reader a fair chance, but obviously I, I can only drop the clues if I know what the solution is. Um, so that's, that's usually one of the first things that I work out when I, I'm figuring out what the book is about. Um, beyond that, I don't always know what's going to happen when I sit down at my desk in a given day. I don't really outline. So I have sort of scenes that I know I want to write, things that I think would be cool to include in the plot, um, strands that I want to introduce. Um, but the order that they happen in, how exactly I get from A to B, all of that is kind of up for grabs, really. So this book, um, so The It Girl has two timelines. There's before when they're younger and then there's after. It's after the incident and the timelines alternate. And so I'm curious to know, since you love spreadsheets, <laughs> whether you plotted that out on a spreadsheet somewhere or whether you wrote the timelines in a linear fashion and then pieced them together, or did you, you know, write alternate um, time periods as you went along? Yeah, so um, although I do enjoy a good spreadsheet, I don't use them for plotting at all. I I don't think I've ever used them in my writing. Um, I don't really I don't really outline formally. I occasionally the most I'll do usually, unless my publishers ask for something, which they, sometimes they do. The most I'll do is have a paragraph at the bottom of my word document with key dates in it, which I did do for this just because. Um, there were quite a lot of complicated things in terms of Hannah's pregnancy, which obviously had to progress at a set rate. And then the academic year, um, for anybody who hasn't read the book, the before timeline is set during the first year of Hannah's time at Oxford University. 
and the after timeline is set 10 years later when she's um at uh, in Ed- living in edinburgh with her husband and working at a bookshop but she is also pregnant so um obviously there were specific things that could only happen at certain times in her pregnancy and again Back in the before timeline, there were specific things that could only happen at certain parts of the academic year. Um, So I had maybe like a paragraph of sort of key dates of this happens then, this happens then, Hannah is 26 weeks pregnant at date or whatever it was. Um, But that that was it. That was purely to keep it straight. Um, And I wrote, I always write, whether it's dual timeline or dual narrator or whatever it is, I always write in the order that you read it um, because I think with thrillers, so much of the book is about the back and forth between the reader and the writer in terms of what I hope you think and the information that I've given to you and the theories that you might be constructing with that information And the only way that I, as the writer, can keep track of what I've told you is to experience those events in the same order that I've given them to you. If I wrote one timeline, I wouldn't have any idea of what I had already conveyed in the other timeline, if that makes sense. So I wouldn't Mm. know where we were in terms of suspicion and so on. So, uh, yeah, so I always, always write in the order that you read it um, because I think to do anything else would really disrupt that thread of information received and conveyed. Mm. Now, the before timeline is, as you say, um, when they're at Oxford and you've got this setting of Oxford University and I'm wondering because there are, Oxford is just such a popular setting for books, movies, television shows. Um, We've got very recently we've had The Reunion by Polly Phillips. We've had Anatomy of a Scandal, obviously, by Sarah Bourne. I mean, we had Brideshead Revisited, right? I mean, it's 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 there. You don't get that many books set in Birmingham Polytechnic or something. So why do you think, what does Oxford bring to these sorts of stories? I mean, I think there's about 25 different answers to that one one is just that it's uh, like visually it's a really beautiful place you know I always think if I'm going to spend the best part of a year somewhere in my imagination I want it to be somewhere really fun um and you know there's a reason people go on holiday to Oxford to wander around the streets because it's just like it's a really lovely place to spend time um and it's all of that makes it a fun place to spend time in your imagination as well um the huge number of books and tv shows and so on set in Oxford is a double-edged sword because of course you want to do something a little bit different you want to add something you want to not tread over the same ground again and again um but on the other hand you know that your reader has quite a lot of tools to understand that world you don't need to spend quite as much time describing and explaining because most people will have a preconception of what an Oxford College looks like already so it's more about filling in the little quirky blanks and the things that they might not know and the little details that maybe you haven't noticed anywhere else um so it's sort of yeah it's there's pluses and minuses in those terms but I think you know part of the reason why we've seen such an explosion of Oxford um novels and and TV shows recently is because certainly in the UK at the moment 
there is a real um, kind of appraisal going on of what the private school and Oxbridge system does to society. Um, you know, our prime minister has an Etonian background, went to Oxford, um, and there's been so many revelations about, you know, the level of privilege involved in places like the Bullingdon Club and, you know, some of the attitudes that come out of that. Um, that is a fascinating subject to explore. It's not something that I look at super overtly in my novel, but there's definitely like the whole sort of panoply of class friction and, you know, the fact that university for many people is the first time that they will come into contact with people from backgrounds radically different to their own. You know, when you're at school, it's very often with people from certainly a geographically similar background because you know you're all from the same town very usually um probably a culturally similar background as well because you grew up in the same area and definitely an economically similar background because you know if you're wealthy and you're going to private school you're only going to mix with people from a similar economic bracket whereas you know if you went to state school as I did uh, you're probably not going to mix with sons of dukes and lords and things and I remember you know a friend who went to Oxford saying to me, there's a girl on my landing who's the daughter of a Viscountess. And, you know, sort of thinking, well, I sort of knew these people did exist, but in a very theoretical way, you know, they seem about as real to me as kind of fairies or, you know, pixies or something like Viscountess. Who knew they're real? Um, and Oxford is you know, they're trying hard to widen access. Um, how successfully they're doing that is up for debate, debate. but certainly, you know, it, it, it's for both ends of the sort of social sphere. It's probably, it was definitely the first time that my friend was, you know, in a friendship with the daughter of a Viscount. And I, it was probably for the daughter of a Viscountess, the same, the other way around. You know, my friend may have been the first person that she'd met who was from a council estate. So, uh, suddenly you're in contact with people from radically different backgrounds, radically different experiences. Um, and really the only thing that you have in common is that you have met the entry requirements to get into Oxford or Cambridge. Mm. Um, and that just makes for intrinsically very interesting territory. You know, that friction, that comparison, mm. all of that is fun to write about and I all universities exemplify that to a certain extent because it's just a very different way of sorting people to the to the rest of the educational structure but Oxford and Cambridge I think exemplify it to its extremes and that therefore is is the the one of the more interesting playgrounds to to talk about in books. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, I'm pretty sure that you're never going to need to become an accountant, particularly <laughs> particularly with so many New York Times bestsellers under your belt. Um, I always end with what's your what are your top three tips to listeners who would love to have their own New York Times bestsellers out there one day? Well, of course the the bottom line is that if I knew the secret, 
A, I would stop stressing as much because every time I open that blank Word document and realize that I've got to write another book, I get that kind of lurch of fear of, oh, how do you do this again? And if I had a little post-it on my wall that told me how, I would certainly feel a lot better. And, you know, B, I would I would bottle it and make my fortune selling it to other novelists. Um, so, you know, that that is probably the sad truth is that there is no secret. As, as um, you know, Ian Rankin put it, the secret to having a long career in publishing is to get lucky and stay lucky and I I certainly feel that I got very lucky um but I think um for me that probably the sort of three tenants that I try to stick to um one I think having an ending in mind and working towards that ending if you're writing a book for the first time that is great advice because so many people peter out after the first 10,000 words first 30,000 words um and undoubtedly there is there are specific low points in a book for me anyway and the, that 30,000 mark is a really common one and I know from talking to other writers that it's often a, a sticking point for them as well because you run out of that initial kind of burst of inspiration and that sort of oh I want to write this book it sounds so cool kind of idea um, and that's when you've got to decide what the book is about, figure out what happens in the middle and having an ending to work towards, an ending that you're excited to write goes a really long way in pulling you through that sort of moment of angst. Uh, so, yeah, I would say, number one, have an ending in mind and uh, and force yourself to write it. You know, don't worry if you hit points where you think that the book isn't your best work. You can go back and fix that. Um, number two, I would say the thing that I always try really hard to do is give people a reason to turn the page. And that can be a big question like who did this murder? Um, but one question isn't going to sustain your readers throughout the book. There has to be a lot of small questions and you have to answer some of them because it's very irritating as a reader to feel that the writer is withholding information. Um, so you ideally you want a series of overlapping mysteries some of which get answered pretty quickly, some of which are stretched out for the duration of the book, some of which are a surprise to the reader, some of which are a validation to the reader because they guessed right and this happened. And having a combination of those is a really, a really good idea. Um, and one thing that it took me quite a long time to learn as a writer is that one of the most pleasurable feelings as a writer is having a really cool scene or a really cool reveal up your sleeve and being excited to write it and for the reader to get to it it's a bit like having a really amazing Christmas present for someone you, you know you're like oh I just can't wait for them to get to this but of course the problem is that the reader doesn't know that it's coming they don't know that you have this amazing surprise for them and so what feels like delicious anticipation to you as the writer can be just fairly boring <laughs> to the reader so um you have to you have to give yourself reasons to write but you also have to signpost to the reader when something cool is happening or it can be a complete surprise which is also great but if it is a complete surprise then um you have to give them another reason that they're being pulled through the page so that the surprise is a bonus rather than something that you know you knew about and they didn't um and the final thing which i think i i wish i had learned earlier and it was certainly what stopped me from putting my work out into the world earlier was just give yourself permission to fail you know i was too frightened of writing a book 
that other people didn't like, um, too frightened of being rejected, too frightened of publishing a book that I I wasn't, you know, for some reason didn't feel proud of. Um, and I think I wish I'd been less scared. Um, I, For me, writing a book is always a process of tricking myself into thinking that nobody will write it, read it. I have to have this kind of bubble where I inhabit it all by myself. The book is just for me. I don't need to worry about making mistakes. I'm not going to show it to anybody. It doesn't matter. I can be as cringy as I like. I can put in sex scenes that I don't want anyone to read or, you know, weird stuff that I'll probably remove in the edit because I know that the next draft will be about making it into a book that I'm proud to send out into the world. Um, And so I think, yeah, I would just say, give yourself permission to fail, give yourself permission to make mistakes and know that it isn't the end of the world if you do. Brilliant. And on that note, congratulations on the It Girl. Everyone, go get yourself a coffee and thank you so much for your time today, Ruth. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. I love chatting to Ruth Ware and to continue to bring you authors from all over the world. Again, thank you for joining me for this milestone episode. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to bringing you more wonderful authors along with their insights into the world of writing. In the meantime, you can connect with me on social media at Twitter at Valerie Koo. That's K-H-O-O. It's the same on Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. But do make sure you hang out with us in the podcast community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news, where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions, and much more.